Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. All right, my name is Scott Lewis. I'm from The Voice of San Diego. I'm Laura Cohn from the Education Synergy Alliance. Hi, Laura. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well this week. Good. Hey, can I just say something? Please. I think think there's some really great people in local school districts and education. There are, you're right. There's just some, you know, I encounter them all the time. You know, uh, my children's school, like just really good stuff. Yeah, I just went to back to school night at my kid's high school. I was, I saw some amazing teachers. And I think what, uh, it just, it just reinforces for me though, that I want things to be great for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like that's, it's, it's like, by showing what can be done, what schools can be, that schools can be great, it just increases the anxiety in me that some aren't, right? Yeah. And I think uh, at the heart of today's topic, we're going to be talking about special education, about uh, not necessarily how it's administered or even how some of the programs work. We're going to start at the very beginning, really, just how how you detect it, how you notify parents, how you as educators and parents can start the whole process of, of realizing you might need some extra accommodations or plans or programs. And, um, and, and then also how, um, you know, some disparities that are uh, existing in the system right now about how some kids falling through the cracks. Yeah. There's a lot to say and know about special education and I'll own, I don't know most of it, but, um, I'm glad we're taking, taking a stab at exploring this front end part of special education. Um, where hopefully early, but too often not early, um, kids who have special needs are um, identified and then um, um, the system organizes itself to provide supports for for the child and the family is engaged in that process um, and their needs are addressed. So there's a lot of work and journalism that could be done about how it's being administered, you know, what the most efficient and innovative ways to handle special education is. There are 16,000 students in San Diego Unified that uh, are under, you know, sort of individual plans or special education plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some stats about the county as well. And, uh, but, you know, I think that at the heart of what we're going to talk about today is just how you start. Yes. How do you recognize your son or daughter is, or the you know whoever the student in your class? How do you recognize that this student might need some extra accommodations? And it's not all that clear. There's no like on ramp. No, and and um, 
we're, you know, all of us humans, we have differences right. and differences are good. We celebrate those differences across lots of different um, areas, skills, predilections, etc. But some of those differences, if they're treated and addressed, uh, well, if they're not treated and addressed, can get in the way of a kid's academic success and their social emotional health. And, and we do have uh, ways to help them that can really make a huge difference. And so that's where the identification and the treatment are, are really critical. And we want to make sure that every child, every family is getting access to what they need to know if their child's differences are worthy of, um, of extra attention and um, extra accommodation. Um, and, and if they're not, if they just need to um, be given extra time or um, like so, somewhat different approaches in the classroom. Yeah, the National Center on uh, Education Outcomes says that, you know, 80 to 85 percent of special education students can perform at grade level if, if they have the accommodations that they, that they need. That's just such a crucial statistic. I, th- I think um, people who don't work with special education students may not understand that, that um, most special education students with appropriate um, treatments and supports, they can do great. They can thrive. And there's there's a huge dynamic and movement in the education world now to make sure that there's not separation between special education students and regular students, that they're integrated or included in regular classrooms. And, I th- and that's an acknowledgement of a statistic like that one, that they can thrive. And, and if we do if we do a good job of adults, that they will thrive and, and, um, and do really great in school. So I think there's two parts to this. The first part is is, uh, you know, what do you do in the school district about, how, you know, you figured something out, uh, you need some extra assistance, uh, what, what, are, what is available? What is, the, what is the difference between an IEP and a 504? What is, uh, what is the school district's responsibility? What rights do you have? What privileges do you have? What, uh, what steps happen? Like, how does it all start? So that's one thing. That's mm-hmm. the official sort of step-by-step thing. And we're going to talk to attorney Seth Schwartz about that. He's a attorney with Schwartz and Story, and uh, they they do this. Uh, uh, special education attorneys. That's what they do. They're the ones that you call when it kind of goes awry, right? When you're not sure yep. you're getting the services you need. Mm-hmm. And then we're also going to talk to Shauna. Cohen, who's done a lot of research and work, understanding that to that issue of of detection, of how you sort of realize somebody needs some help, and and then how some kids aren't getting that. Yes, and Shauna is particularly expert about the differences in um, how kids from low income families and um, immigrant families. It, are treated and identified versus kids from say white families or middle and upper middle class families. And so we'll have a chance to talk to her about that. Yeah. I think what we're, we've been talking so much about this sort of kindergarten shock, right. Of like this, you know, your kid goes to from a preschool with, you know, nine other children in a class or eight other children in a class to one with 24 and a lot more structure and homework and all kinds of things. Right. In the preschool class, they're encouraged to run around. They're encouraged to play. They can move wherever they want. They have a lot more agency, as we put it, in the education world, whereas in the typical kindergarten class, there's they... Uh, there's a lot more structure, instruction, um, sitting in seats and following directions than there is in a typical preschool classroom. And we've been talking about that transition as, as a kind of shock that is um, not, you know, something we can, we have to improve, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there is a silver lining. There's a benefit to it because it really brings into relief some of the kids that that uh, might have 
in that sort of free agency structure might not have uh, stood out as having maybe a bigger problem than than or not a problem, just something they're dealing with that we could address. Right? Yeah, I suppose that is a silver lining. But because so many special needs are um, remediated best when they're treated early, yeah. we would optimally have our early childhood systems designed really well to to identify um, those needs, even though we're giving kids lots of choices and freedom to to wiggle and move. So right. that that's the the best case is we do both. We do really great um, developmentally appropriate classrooms, and we're really good at spotting needs. So if you are an educator out there and you you're wrestling with that, how do you best approach? How do you you know sort of flag a student? And if you're a parent wondering, hey, you know, what do I need to do to um, to recognize? Am I how do I tell? If there's something more wrong than just, you know, classic kids, you know, trying to get used to things, I hope this helps. So let's first start with a discussion with attorney Seth Schwartz, who came in to help us just understand the very basics about what special education is and how it begins when you when you realize maybe the school district um, could help you a little bit. Let's pretend that, uh, you know, you have entered school, you start to realize there's something that your son or daughter is dealing with that uh, stands out and you need to get some special attention, you need to get some special, you need to get an IEP as it was. So define uh, an IEP and, and also what people, um, just the first steps people take if they realize they, they need to, to work through something like this. Well, if a parent realizes that their child has a special needs or a learning disability that would potentially qualify for an IEP, they bring it to the school's attention, usually making a written request. That written request would then trigger an assessment uh, process. That uh, sometimes can be triggered by the school district as well. They have what we call a child find obligation. That child find obligation is to seek out and find children that may have a suspected disability to assess them and determine if they qualify for what we would call an individualized educational program. That's the IEP document that you're referring to. The other option is to uh, go into what they call a 504 plan, which is a different set of law and a broader category of kids with disabilities or allergies or other well, What is it? So that means that you might have an issue, but not necessarily a, a, a learning disability. Well, the difference between an IEP and a 504 is an IEP is individualized with goals that the child works on, and it can be general education with supports and services, or it can actually be outside of general education in a more a special day class or a resource room or more individualized attention, working on very specific things. If they had a 504 plan, it would be different because they would be receiving uh, additional supports within general education, typically. Oh, okay. So... Like what? Uh, they could re get extra reading support. Uh, they could work directly with a teacher, for instance. Uh, with an IEP, you might have speech and language services. If the child has problems communicating or socializing. What are your rights as a parent? What if you? What are your rights? What do you? What are you guaranteed by the state, by the by the school district? The primary right here really is once a student qualifies for an IEP, they're going to identify areas of needs that this child has, and they're going to develop a program to address those areas in need, and they're going to provide services and supports for both those areas of need and the general education curriculum. Okay. Are there some schools doing it better? We talk a lot about uh, charter schools. Are there charter schools... Um, handling it more efficiently? Are there are district schools handling it better? Are there individuals within each sector handling it better? 
Well, as an attorney that deals with a lot of different school districts and charter schools, I think it's very difficult to, to answer that question, uh, namely because we see some of the worst situations. Mm -hmm. For instance, San Diego Unified, I believe, has around 16,000 students in special education. We don't handle 16,000 cases a year in our office. But what we do see tend to be pretty interesting cases, things that do go awry. But we don't see you know, 15 plus thousand kids. Right. So, you know, I have to operate under the assumption that a lot of things are going really well. And we've met great staff at different places. Now, there are uh, different environments that tend to deal with problems differently. Right. What can go awry? What, what would require or provoke somebody to seek out your assistance? There's no one answer to that question. I, I guess from a practical standpoint, when a parent feels like their child is falling behind or not receiving the services they believe that their child should have, that's usually when somebody comes and sees us. Uh, maybe there's behavioral problems. The school's not dealing with those behavioral problems in a way that the parent understands. Uh, a lot of times that may be right or wrong. Uh, it can run both ways. Sometimes uh, a legal wrong and a wrong that we view can be two different things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we're sorting out that question. But from a practical standpoint, usually a parent has a pretty good feeling of when things aren't going right, when they go and they look for an attorney, and usually it's an advocate first, uh, somebody that can help them with this process. Uh, something is not sitting well with them. And it's uh, they're falling behind in reading. They um, Their behaviors are interfering with their ability to access their education. They're, uh, they're not paying attention. They're not passing their classes. Uh, the, the reasons are going to be distinct, I think, a lot of times for the types of disabilities the child actually may have. Hmm. So when are we going to get to the point where everybody just has an individual educational plan? It seems like, like with technology or something, it wouldn't be that hard to get to maybe. I, you know, you're getting into a question about whether the education system needs to change, and that that's wholly apart from special education. <laughs> uh, certainly, I think most of us would probably admit to having some attention problems. Uh, does that rise to the level of an IEP? I mean, the law has a standard here, and the, the child has to meet that standard, and the uh, IEP team has to decide whether that child uh, falls into that category properly for services. Okay, I hope that helped a little bit. Let's move right into our number of the week. Our number of the week is 12%. So 12% of San Diego County students, grades K through 12, are receiving special education services, which is actually pretty um, similar to the nation as a whole. That's the number I've known about for a while. What is most interesting to me about that 12% number is that if we look back over the last five years, it's an increase from 10% five years ago. I honestly am not sure what to make of that increase because it might be. And so that's a 20% increase in the number of um, kids receiving special education services. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're identifying special needs better and getting more um, services for kids. Um, it seems more likely that it's that than the alternative hypothesis would be that we have more kids coming, you know, growing up these days who need, who are, who have um, disabilities or have special needs. I think that's what the, the sort of background color of this entire discussion today is, is, is that, you know, identifying kids, getting them accommodations that they need is kind of revealing that there's been a lot of kids on this sort of periphery, right? On this edge of, are they struggling with something that they need help with? Are they out of sync and we can help them get into, um, into sync more or are they just, you know, kids? Yeah. And, well, and I want to elevate that if, if a child does, um, have authentic special needs, we want them to get identified and treated. Yeah. On the other hand, 
the, a countervailing consideration is that there's there's some belief and evidence that um, that especially African-American kids have been over-identified for special education, that their um, expression of their just, you know, natural differences has been called um, a disability inappropriately and they get labeled with special education and then they get pulled out of class more. And so they're not getting the regular um, instruction that they ought to be getting and that it's a vortex that they have trouble escaping from that once that labels on them, they're, they can't get out. So you want to identify appropriately and with no bias is the, you know, the optimum situation. And I know, I know that educators out there are reaching for that, but, but there's, you know, a belief that we haven't quite hit it yet. Right. All right. Our what's working this week. What's working this week is Healthy Development Services. Healthy Development Services is an approach that we've developed here in San Diego County um, that the first five San Diego funds to the tune of $13 million a year through the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a really cool, we have a very active American Academy of Pediatrics um, branch here in San Diego, and this is one of the great things they do. They deploy different providers across the county to um, identify and treat kids with mild um, to medium special needs. And one of the things that one of the hallmarks of San Diego County's approach to it is that we do a lot to engage the families and make sure that they um, feel really knowledgeable about what their child is struggling with and that they're helping with the solution. So um, we're known nationally. In fact, Harvard's given an award to Healthy Development Services because we're known nationally for having deployed a really great um, comprehensive system for this. So based on, you know, based on this skillful um, activity that's happening around our county, probably we're doing a better job than other places at identifying early um, needs of kids. Awesome. Well, let's get into the really interesting discussion about detection and about uh, notifying parents and about um, getting kids the help they might need and, and how that's working better in some areas than not. And uh, let's turn it over to our discussion with Shauna Cohen. Let's do it. Okay, we are joined in the Voice of San Diego podcast studio in the great podcast studio in downtown San Diego by Shauna Cohen, who is a professor of education at UC San Diego. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming in today. Now, my understanding is you are uh, you specialize in understanding special education, but also early detection. What what would you mean by that? So, early detection specifically of um, kids with developmental delay or kids with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in how culturally diverse families identify are identified, um, how their kids are identified for those disabilities. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit earlier. It it kind of gives me a lot of worry and nightmares to think of how many kids might be sort of slipping through without being noticed or without uh, and and you know the, the 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 amount of improvement you can see from occupational therapy or from you know uh, accommodations of some sort is just really extraordinary mm-hmm. and to think of how many people just might not be recognized how big of a problem is it i think for um culturally diverse families, it's a much bigger problem than it is for um, white middle-class families that might have um, the advocacy um, 
efforts to get the services that they need. Um, there's a lot of research that has shown that um, the California Department of Developmental Services, which is the umbrella organization that serves kids with disabilities, they spend more money on white families than they do on Latino families or African-American families. So for them, it's um, a little bit more difficult to get the high quality diagnoses that you need in order to have services. Well, what are help us understand what are some of the barriers or differences that might result in kids of color being identified less and getting less treatment? Well, the primary barriers are that early detection and early intervention is much more effective for children, especially for kids that are um, uh, really severely affected by these disabilities. Because if you diagnose and treat do early intervention early, then there it is much more likely that the child will end up in a general education, typical kinds of, of general education settings rather than prolonged uh, time in a special education setting later in life. So what are some of the barriers? That, what are the differences maybe between um, what white families do or experience and what what other families might do or experience? I think the main barriers are lack of access to um, to people that speak the language in terms of early interventionists that might speak Spanish or that might speak the, the person's native language. Um, there might not be those kinds of uh, treatments or people that speak the language to perform those treatments. I think a lot of times there's it's an issue of advocacy. So a lot of families um, or white middle-class families, they know where to go to get the services that their child needs. And a lot of um, Latino families or um, African-American families might not know where to go. We just um, conducted a study um, with colleagues at UC Riverside where we found that um, we we tested um, uh, the perceptions of autism treatments um, between um, Latino families and white families. And the white families had a lot more um, perceptions of the types of disability that their children had, like the types of symptoms that their children exhibited versus the Latino families who reported fewer symptoms. But in the end, the Latino kids exhibited more symptoms of, of autism spectrum disorder than the white kids in our in our small sample. So it's it's really interesting that the advocacy that the parents or the 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 knowledge that the parents have about what kinds of treatments or how to get treatments um, they don't have that some of the, some parents don't have that. One of the things I I feel like there's a lot of fog around this. There's a there's that preschool period where you're you're not uh, there's no systematic way that you're flagged, right? There's no sort of way that like somebody lets you know that something is something you should deal with. Mm -hmm. And it and what you're describing almost is that there's just there's parents who are close enough to the teachers or close enough to the school that that they're more easily flagged. They're more or close enough to the pediatrician to right. have these conversations about what are deve developmental milestones they should be looking for and things like that. Right. And so it's not necessarily that there's there's like racist racism in, in like the perceptions or there might be a systemic racism in, in just how it's approached, but it, it's not that they're racist. It's that there's it, that there's, there's that advocacy, that sort of proactive resource based mm -hmm. experience where you're close to the school, you're 
always talking about it and, and it's something you, you realize something needs to be done. Right. But th- that still seems so fuzzy. <laughs> why, why is it so fuzzy still about how you are notified, you know? As a parent, you mean? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't know why it's so fuzzy. I think um, a lot of times parents have their own cultural beliefs about what development looks like and, you know, their own ideas about what typical development should be like. And so they might not go out and seek, you know, treatment or diagnosis if their child may not be talking at, you know, 14, 15, 16 months of age. Um, So they might see life as, you know, normal, you know, and, and not really try and seek out, you know, the types of services that you might need in order to get that child checked out early. Yeah, because we all know that children, I mean, not all, but I think generally parents understand from their own lives, from their own siblings, from their own experience, that kids develop at different rates and that there are differences among us. And so we're not, as parents, equipped to recognize when a difference between our child and other children is something that requires treatment versus when it's not. So um, I think what we're saying or what we're um, elevating is that kids need to interface with someone who can know that difference, right. like a pediatrician mm-hmm. or uh, or who else? You know, how, how else does it happen? Teachers at, at preschools, if they happen to be in preschool? Mm-hmm. Teachers at preschools or um, if, you know, family members work with um, speech and language pathologists or um people in the field of social welfare or public health or um, where there might be more professionals that kind of have an eye towards understanding what typical development might look like. You know, it's kind of word of mouth. You know, somebody who, you know, has worked with a child with autism or with Down syndrome or whatever. And so you might see signs. Although, Although things like Down syndrome is much more easy to detect than than autism or something that's more invisible. Yeah, or it could be like a, a, a coach on a little league team or something that's like, hey, mm-hmm. uh, oh, is he dealing with blank? And you're like, oh, I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I hadn't realized that. But but you, that means you have to be a part of an interaction of a group of people mm-hmm. who are experienced and already getting services and whatever. So it's like, I guess that's what I mean. It feels like there's, if you, especially if it's like your first child or something and you don't have any other perspective and maybe they don't you know spend much time with other kids or something and you don't even you don't even know so it's it's like uh, um, that resource uh, barrier really becomes clear so what why is it in you know what what do we know about how important it is to recognize things early especially like autism spectrum well we know from a lot of the work by Heckman and other people that the early brain development is really important. It's kind of a a crucial period in a child's life. And so for a child that might be diagnosed with a developmental delay or disorder or autism or something like that, that is the key time, the critical period to go in and do really intense behavioral treatment and other types of treatment, speech and language therapy and things like that, to really um, to fight kind of the, the typical trajectory that a child might be on if he or she has that diagnosis. And because the brain is developing at such a fast pace at that early age, at the earlier the better. And We know from many um, studies that have shown that when you do um, intervene early, especially for these kids, their outcomes are far superior 
to waiting until age 9, 10, 11, when it's basically too late. You're kind of just stuck working with, you know, how they can develop job skills or things like that. It's really dramatic, as as I understand it. For example, we're much better at um, identifying and treating Down syndrome early, just to take um, one example. And so people who work with people with Down syndrome say there's a dramatic difference between the abilities and skills of the adult Down syndrome people they work with and the children Down syndrome they work with because we've gotten so much better at doing early treatment. So um, they're just miles and miles ahead of what their adult predecessors were able to do. What about for autism? Tell us about early treatment for autism and how. What is it? The potency of early treatment versus later treatment. Yeah. So what early intervention for autism is, um, it consists, it's very, it varies in the types of treatment that you receive, but kind of some common characteristics are that it's intense behavioral interventions that are usually between 20 to 30 hours a week, um, adult-led one-on-one kinds of activities in the child's home. Um, and they address issues like social skills challenges, communication disorder, um, like if, if kids aren't able to communicate with language, they use a variety of different techniques to communicate with kids like a picture exchange communication system or gestures or things like that to get the child to be more communicative. Um, and it also is a, a program that really helps to mitigate behavioral challenges that might arise when a child is unable to communicate. Because we know that behavior um, kind of exacerbates uh, when children are not able to communicate. And there's a lot of physical things you can treat as well. Like mm-hmm. they can be, they can become more coordinated. And they can their hand-eye coordination, their eyes, their their hearing, all that stuff can be addressed. Well, one, we try to direct this show to parents, um, not just parents, but educators, but parents and educators. And if you were to tell them, like, hey. As a parent, here's some things to look out for because it's not always obvious for for quite some time, as we've talked about. Especially if if you know you're not around a social setting where the, where it's clearly something people are talking about. So, what first of all, what could parents look for, and then and then and then we'll talk about educators. What could parents look for, or what should they look for, especially on these borderline, you know, autism spectrum, attention deficit, sensory processing. Mm-hmm. So parents um, should look for, are, is your child making eye contact with you um, regularly? Does your child respond when his or her name is called? Do you have to repeat it, the name several times um, in order for him to turn around and look at you? Um, what does the child's play look like? Is it repetitive in nature? Does the child simply pick up uh, the car and spin the wheels and look at the wheels and that's how he plays? Or is there a more kind of variety in his pr- kind of in the play that he engages in? Those are kind of some big um And is he talking? Is he able to talk um, and or uh, approximate words? Um, So so let's say you notice that. What's what's your first step? We've talked to Seth earlier, who the lawyer who talked about what he could, you know, what you can do once you start getting into the school system. But what do you where do you go first if you're like, hey, this is this this feels like it's resonating with me. What should I do? Um, if I were a parent with a child that I had some concerns about, I would take two or three prongs to get into services as quickly as possible. The first would be to seek out a developmental pediatrician um, to 
could get some sort of confirmation that what you're observing is ex- actually happening. What's a developmental pediatrician? It's somebody that is um, trained in understanding um, developmental disorders and has like specific training. Like for example, um, there's several people at Rady Children's Hospital that have done um, that are trained specifically to um, detect these kinds of disorders, and they're called developmental. So I would go to my doctor, my pediatrician, and, and raise the concern to, and say, please refer me to a developmental pediatrician. Yes, or a neurologist. Okay, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, fir- the second thing I would do is go straight to the San Diego Regional Center, call them on the phone because the waiting lists are ridiculously long, and say, I have concerns about my child. I, I need an intake assessment ASAP. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two biggest things I would do first. Mm-hmm. There are really powerful, um, you know, therapies and occupational therapies is often one of those. But again, some of this happens in coordination with the school. So as preschool educators and as uh, elementary school educators, what can what can they do to break the news to people uh, or not necessarily break the news, but say, hey, I'm around kids all the time you really need to think about this child and maybe do some work on this. Uh, have you seen approaches that are, that are make that easier, that make that more comfortable? Because obviously it's scary, but it's also invaluable. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest words of advice I would give for teachers are to really develop strong nurturing relationships with the families in your classroom. That way, when if something does come up, you feel like you have that foundational relationship where you feel comfortable enough that you could raise, you know, certain concerns. Like I've noticed that Johnny isn't looking at me when I talk to him or I notice that his play is really repetitive or so. And that might not be as hard to communicate to the parent if they've developed really strong relationships, maybe starting off with some home visits. Uh, This is kind of, you know, typical high quality early education that we're looking for. So are they engaging in home visits and developing strong relationships with the family, not just the child in the classroom during those few hours of the day, but really strong relationships with the parents too. What can we do about some of these uh, areas, these uh, populations and and demographics that aren't getting that sort of access or aren't, uh, you know, the disparity is obviously clear. What can we do about it? Um, Well, more research needs to be done to understand um, how how culturally diverse families choose, obtain, select services for their kids, um, what are, what's important to them in terms of taking a, a more strength-based perspective or capabilities perspective to try and um, shape the early intervention services to be appropriate for them, because a lot of these um, early intervention programs programs have been tested um, and standardized on white middle-class families. So taking the approach of um, understanding the strengths that these families have and what is it that's important to them and how can we adapt and modify the services so that they would actually implement them in the homes, in their homes. And it's not such an outsider perspective of Mm -hmm. something coming in kind of taking over their lives. Mm. It's a it's a really intense program. So you always have to have parent buy-in in order for that to be, t- for the program to be successful. Mm. I would also, one of you said, one of your findings is that um, Latino families were less articulate about their children's symptoms. And I wonder if that's also a translation issue that 
um, there's inadequate or um, not very sophisticated translation. And so they're not, um, they're, they're getting just sort of summaries of what's going on with their kids rather than specific things. So translation services would seem to be a really important um, remedy also. Yeah, and there is um, there are a lot of um, improvements in that area in terms of um, there's some early intervention programs that are starting to do or that have in San Diego for a while been doing some um, early intervention um, in-home services in Spanish, for example. And um, I just finished interviewing a bunch of parents in Imperial County who have, um, although there aren't enough services for these families. Um, they do have um, really specific services that are, um, you know, in Spanish and that um, many of these practitioners do shape their interventions to be more effective for their particular home that they're in because the parent, you know, is there working with the family, et cetera. So. Sean, I noticed in getting ready for the podcast that there are there are actually substantially more kids in San Diego County identified as being as having autism. What what do you attribute that to? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> the water. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of question in terms of cause of autism and what is the cause. And nobody really, we don't, the research is inconclusive in terms of understanding what the cause is. We do know that um, there are biological and environmental factors that come into play in terms of understanding cause. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know why why San Diego is more. Well, could it be better identification? Is that maybe part of the? It's story? possible. It's possible that we have more um, effective um, pediatricians that are identifying or and psychologists that are identifying um, kids earlier and well, with more it, accuracy. It also feels like this, and this fascinates me. With this, is there's there's obviously space that we've we created in the in culture to allow for some kids that are just different, right? They're just, and, and, and there's all this stigma attached to it. Like there's something wrong, but also, it also feels like everybody's kind of on a big spectrum. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're just now like realizing that if you get too far along on that, that like, you're going to start to really struggle or, or have some things that get built in, you know, later in life that, that are hard to overcome. I, I, I just still am fascinated though, by that, like that distinction of, are you just are you just kind of going at your own out of sync pace, or are you are, are, is there something genuinely that we have to worry about? And I wonder if that whole stigma isn't part of this cultural divide as well. Like if you're mm -hmm. if some of these uh, families just aren't willing to enter in a discussion that something's wrong, mm -hmm. as opposed to like if there's just something different, different that we can adjust to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, our kind of the way in which we've approached education in the past has always been kind of let's fix the child. There's something wrong with the child. And, and our policies kind of have helped us to move away from that kind of medical model of fixing the child towards a more um, environmental approach in terms of it's the environment that needs fixing. And, and we need to kind of shape our educational strategies and our teaching strategies to be more effective for that child. We as teachers, as educators, as, as pediatricians, as whoever is influencing the child. We need to kind of shape our, our strategies to meet the needs of that individual learner with his or her 
awesome strengths that he or she has to be more effective for them. And and I think that's really an important kind of key takeaway from this is that it's not the kid. There's nothing wrong with the child. Every child is different, developing in a different way. And we as educators are have to be challenged to kind of take on those those differences and shape the way that we educate the kids based on those different right. attributes that he or she has. And and in fact, some of the things you might do for those children could have just like, maybe we should do it for all. Yeah. You know, like there's so many of these therapies that are about strength and about, you know, eye movement and hearing and sensory and stuff. It's like, it seems like a lot of kids would benefit from that no matter what. Yeah. And maybe if we, you know, if, if they're dealing with uh, energy issues or, you know, and, and part of the therapy is to have them run around or something like that. Maybe everybody should have more recess, you know, yeah, like there's absolutely. a lot of, a lot of strict, uh, strict uh, structures around public education that seems like maybe learning from this diverse population would actually help us improve the entire environment. Most definitely. I just came from a classroom the other day that instead of desk chairs, all the kids had those big therapy balls yeah. that were, they were sitting on, they were just bobbing around and doing, and you know, a lot, they were moving around, but doing the work, you know, it's yeah. still, they're still getting things done. They're just, you know, taking a different approach. I love that. I do love that perspective. I think we're, all, we're talking about something that's really important about um, adapting the environment for the diversity of children that are in front of us on the, but I just want to note that we also talked about the power of early intervention yeah. and um, saying, you know, saying that nothing's wrong with the child maybe is intention with, your observation that if we intervene really skillfully early with kids, then they can, they can, some of their issues can be mitigated. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of, you know, challenges that come with having a, a, a label of autism. You have issues, behavioral challenges and communication and social deficits that might be much harder to overcome the older that you get. And so, um, that the case for intervening early and understanding exactly what those challenges are and how to overcome those challenges was just it's just more effective when you do it early. Well, Shauna Cohen from uh, UC San Diego, professor of education. I can't thank you enough for coming. A very interesting conversation. Thanks. Thank you for having me. That was very interesting. I think we're going to have to revisit this topic. Um, also, we could get into it from the administration angle, uh, the economics, the funding. Yep. you know how it's being administered any innovations that we might want to talk to people about how they're how they're approaching the issue so i want to come back to it for sure we will one note i want to make sure parents in the san diego unified school district are aware of a big change the san diego unified school district is still allowing you to make choices uh, to go to other schools or apply for other schools within the district but the window has been uh brought much narrower and is now earlier. You have between October 3rd and November 14th of this year to uh, apply for another choice school. So if you're in the San Diego Unified School District, unless you move into the district from another place, that's your only window to apply for uh, for uh, another option other than your neighborhood school. That's an enormous difference. It used to be three and a half months that you had to make a choice, and now it's just six weeks. And those six weeks are happening before most families are really feeling, you know, really tuned into where their kid's going to go to school next year. So 
it's a dramatic change they've made, and I hope families are tuned into it. So again, if you want to apply to another school within the San Diego Unified School District than the one you're naturally assigned to as in your neighborhood, you have between October 3rd and November 14th to apply. I think it's yet another data point, not too big, but a, but a significant data point along the trend of them kind of moving away from that choice, you know, very liberal choice uh, environment. It seems that way, yeah. This has been Good Schools for All in partnership with San Diego or Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. You are always welcome to call our voicemail. We got a very sweet voicemail from a woman about choice, about how it, you your destiny is not your neighborhood. And I, I found that to be really moving. And so please uh, send that in at 619-354-1085. That's 619-354-1085. And you can uh, leave a message. Please tell us your name and what neighborhood you're calling from. And then be specific if you do not want us to read your name or tell your name and uh, or play your, your clip. Again, this is Voice of San Diego. I'm Scott Lewis on behalf of the Ed- Education Synergy Alliance and Laura Cohn. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.